Welcome to episode 92 of Positive Regression, a motorsports analytics podcast. I'm Alan Kavana, joined as always by David Smith. On this episode, is it possible for a driver to make a strength stronger? Look at a curious off-season move that touches on just that point. Our Las Vegas preview takes a deep look at Team Penske and, as promised, a cool announcement surrounding this podcast and the Las Vegas race. But first, as always, this is episode 92 of Positive Regression. This is the Herb Thomas edition. David, another great historic name. Herb Thomas was one of the drivers in the first ever NASCAR race in 1949. And by 1951, he was champion. He would win another title in 1953. 48 total wins in what would become a Hall of Fame career for the driver. And David, as much as we know about his name and his stats, we also know about his car. He was the driver of the fabulous Hudson Hornet. What should we know about Herb Thomas? Yeah, I'm going to focus more on man than car here. Uh, Sorry to all our Hudson Hornet fans. But I... I've spent a lot of time thinking about old Herb. I actually wish that I would have met him, uh, had, had been able to ask him some questions, but, uh, he passed away in 2000. Alan, he is, in my opinion, as underrated as a two-time champion with 48 race wins could possibly <laughs> be. Oh yeah. Uh, shouldn't, shouldn't be that way, but it does feel that way. He directly rivaled Tim Flock, who we talked about on episode 91 and Lee Petty for at least a good four-year stretch that I want to dive into here. And I believe he was better than both of them. Perhaps it's because his dominance came in those early days of NASCAR, but his career arc was reminiscent of Jeff Gordon's. And I think that's a decent production parallel because Jeff Gordon had a two-year stretch where his peer topped 5.0. Simply incredible. We haven't seen anything like it since. Herb Thomas did that. He did it in 1953 and 1954. He won 24 times in 71 starts in those two years, half of his career win total coming in two consecutive seasons. And just the, the, the timeliness of his career, he only ran the majority of a Cup Series schedule seven times, seven years, all consecutive. From 1950 to 1956, he won at least one race in each of those years. And he essentially retired from full-time driving after 1956, his age 33 seasons. So he never saw his statistical prime. Uh, but he did that after sustaining an injury and a crash at the Cleveland County Fairgrounds. He cracked his skull and had to undergo brain surgery. He survived it, and he actually went on to compete a few more times, but his career was effectively over, probably the smart decision. 48 victories, though, uh, before reaching the age of 34. Quite impressive. Alan, he would have been in his statistical prime, just as uh, some young whippersnapper named Richard Petty was beginning to win races. Really? So potentially... A rivalry that we didn't get to see play out. Interesting to look back on the numbers he could have had and just how statistically crazy his numbers were. I was just doing the math, David. A win percentage, 
take it for what you will, a win percentage of 21% for his career. Only 229 races, as you said, 48 victories. Uh, I quickly looked for, for up Jimmy Johnson's win percentage, and it's 12%. Again, I don't know how much you want to put weight into that, but just to give you a little perspective, 21% of the races he was in, he won. That's pretty damn good. Yeah, still really cool. And in, any of those guys from that era are going to have their detractors because I think for Herb, I'll have to go back and check. It's either 13 or 14 of those 48 wins came against a field consisting of 30 or more cars. So you can say that it was a depleted competitive era, certainly, but to go out then and, and NASCAR started because this was a popular form of sport in the Southeast. So there were high level competitors. He was one of them and arguably the best of them. Yes. And as we said, driver of the Hudson Hornet. Some people know that car more than they know the name Herb Thomas. Just as you walk into the NASCAR Hall of Fame, that was one of the first cars that you saw. You know, it's painted on the side. Fabulous Hudson Hornet. I think in the Cars movies it is represented well. So uh, another uh, historic tie-in with a, a Hall of Fame driver for episode 92 of Positive Regression, the Herb Thomas edition. All right, let's get this started, David, because we're going to talk about something that is affecting the 2021 season that actually came from an off-season move. Martin Truex Jr. replaced spotter Clayton Hughes with former driver Drew Herring as his spotter because restarts, he said, on 550 horsepower tracks are more like restarts on drafting tracks. This was, I think, a preseason Daytona 500 media interview, Martin said that. Uh, Hughes then went on to win the Daytona 500 with Michael McDowell, making Truex the butt of many jokes on social media only because, look, he went and made the switch. And then who wins the Daytona 500? Not Truex, his spotter. So, David, to put this in perspective, what really caught my eye on this was I pay attention to what you say, David. And I know Martin Truex Jr. was a great restarter in 2020. So to make a change seemed a little odd. Give us an idea of just how good he was in 2020. Yeah, this is where the plot thickens, right? The difference between perception and reality. He was the best restarter by far in NASCAR in 2020 based on position retention rate across both grooves. He was the second best restarter on 550 horsepower tracks specifically, retaining position 70% of the time. Inarguably, this was a strength for him. But the perception it's, it's just kind of bad. I don't, I don't really know why. Uh, Truex, I know is something of a serial complainer or whiner or what have you on, on the scanner. Uh, and if your qualitative observation is limited to what folks listening live to his radio or tweeting or what you see on the radio active segment on, uh, online or on race hub, you would think that he struggles on restarts, but none of that's reality, right? The the complaints that you hear in duress do not reflect results. And the reasoning behind this change, when you tweeted it, I stopped in my tracks. It's it's so interesting. But the reason, the perception was that he was a bad restarter. One of the comments uh, in the response to your tweet about the change was, imagine firing someone because you're struggling with restarts. Clearly, that's not the case here. He's not struggling. He's never really struggled. He's been an underrated restarter for the whole of his career. And here he is now wanting to be better. And the bar he holds for himself on restarts must be incredibly high. 
and he has to notice something that he could be doing better. That is the trait of a champion. Uh, I compared it uh, last week for NBC Sports to Stephen Curry wanting to increase his three-point field goal percentage, which if you know anything about basketball, that's already high relative to other NBA players. So at this level, it's not about basics. For for someone like Truex to get better at restarting, it takes a radical change. A change in spotters to someone like Drew Herring with a recent, relevant, high-level driving experience. He was in a Cup Series race as recently as two years ago. That probably qualifies as a radical change. When you're already statistically the best, what is the best case scenario for making a change like this? Because how, how much better can you get, David? Ooh, that's a good question. Okay, so to me, this appears the the best way for him to improve anything that is within his control, right? We always talk about drivers needing to be faster, but there's a lot of elements at play there. It, it's on the team. It's on the team's resources, and that isn't directly in the driver's control. This is something that Martin Truex can go out and improve on his own volition, He's a very good long-run passer, too. We saw that uh, in the Daytona road course race, for certain. But if he views restarts as something having a higher ceiling for growth that is simultaneously realistic, then I think that's what he's doing here. So the best-case scenario, I think, is that he shores up retention in the non-preferred groove and adds some gain opportunities for the preferred groove, because there was kind of a, a chasm in the positions gained among drivers of similar retention rates. There's some room for improvement there. Um, but this also creates a better ability to call an audible. Uh, for instance, when the choose zone was implemented, uh, now he's going to be seeing drivers around him. He understands what they do. Maybe a situation that was previously a restart focused on defense is now offense. Kurt Busch, restart master himself, spoke to this for an article that I ran last week on NBC Sports. It takes that kind of experience, either from driving in these races or watching film to understand what the competition typically does. Truex may need help recognizing some of these opportunities because these opportunities can win races or get better results uh, if they're not left on the table. The ability to pivot quickly from a defensive mindset to an offensive mindset requires some quick calculus and potentially a more instant call and response dynamic with a spotter. You know, you've talked to a lot of drivers, as you said, guys like Kurt Busch. Uh, you know, I've talked to drivers for years about how they prepare for a race, right? Because you, you can't practice restarts. They don't practice at all. And if they did, they wouldn't practice restarts, right? But how do you improve as a driver at something like restarts? I know a lot of drivers, uh, a lot of the younger drivers, actually, they, they watch so much in-car camera. They'll watch an entire race of, say, a guy like Kevin Harvick. And one thing they'll certainly pay attention to are the restarts. So a driver like Martin Truex Jr., though, drivers in general, how do they improve their restarting, you know, without literally having the ability to practice out there? Yeah. Oh, yeah. The lack of practice. That's a good point. Um, Kevin Harvick's a, a good shout. Uh, Jimmy Johnson, too, for a while. A lot of young drivers watched inboard of Jimmy. Uh, weirdly, I asked Matt DiBenedetto this very question. He said that he improves restarts by watching Martin Truex on video. Oh, wow, nice. Um, 
so that's what those who take improvement seriously are doing. And it's either through SMT data, uh, data visualization or traditional video. And for these, I think traditional video works wonders. Understanding the action, the inaction, how other drivers read the field. That's the kind of stuff you get. That's the kind of stuff I gather from watching viewings of restarts on repeat. You can get a sense of habit, but also exploration. Uh, one of the things that makes Kurt Busch a fun restarter is that he is unpredictable. The predictable drivers tend to get eaten up. And I think that is resulting in some of the chaos we're seeing on restarts. Some of it's panic, of course, but in some of the chaos that we're seeing on restarts at the, uh, the 550 tracks. When you look at the name of spotters, David, Tim Fedua, former driver, Rick Corelli, Daytona 500 winning spotter, uh, former driver, uh, Brad Kislowski a few years ago switched over to Coleman Presley, former driver, Martin Shrex Jr. switches to Drew Herring, former and or current driver. Do former drivers make better spotters? I'm sure it's not exclusive, right? Non-drivers can do an equally good job, but I think where former drivers work out well is that there is a sense of realism in what is being conveyed over the radio. At a certain point, you have to understand, if you're a spotter, that there are lanes a driver can't block or moves that are simply too unrealistic. And also that info that's being conveyed, I've heard a lot of it when scanning radios. There's info that just might not be relevant, especially given who the driver is. And I think what is said to the driver during a race should be efficient, both succinct and impactful, right? I mean, when you speak, it should have some level of importance. And I think former drivers come into the spotting gig already realizing this because they themselves have had spotters. And David, this was something I mentioned going into the subject. As soon as Martin Truex Jr. makes the switch, right? We have the Daytona 500. His now former spotter, Clayton Hughes, goes out and wins the Daytona 500 with new driver, Michael McDowell. So, after seeing that, David, any second guessing the choice of making the spotter switch now that his spotter, Clayton Hughes, has the 500 win and Martin Truex Jr. does not? Yeah, yeah. I'm curious what you think about this, but I, I say absolutely not because it, it sort of lacks nuance to think that Clayton Hughes and Martin Truex can't be successful independent of one another. Um, it's, it's kind of like a, a they're like a couple, right? Yeah, they just yeah. they got divorced. It doesn't, necessarily mean that they are bad spouses to each other and won't be good spouses to anyone in the future. Uh, a separation like this is just a signal that it isn't working. And since it's the spotter's voice in the driver's ear, whether a spotter is good or valuable, that's all purely subjective to the driver. If Truex simply can't tolerate listening to Clayton Hughes anymore, or he thought Hughes couldn't provide anything beyond what he was already providing, then Martin Truex probably made the right call, and that has to be respected. And the flip side to that is that Michael McDowell very likely gained a good spotter, and but that's that is for him to decide. 
Yeah, three top tens to start the season, so clearly things going well over on the 34 car. <laughs> no no and, complaint so far, right? Yeah, no, and that's not, yeah, and I, I don't know if I'm qualified to answer the question if, if Martin Drex Jr. should be second guessing himself. I, I think back to when, remember, Joey Logano had Tab Boyd and then TJ Majors became available. You go and get TJ Majors, right? I mean, he just had that, that reputation being with Dale Jr. We know Logano's prowess on super speedways. I think that was a, a great marriage over there. Uh, the only thing I don't know is, I mean, Martin Truex Jr. went to Drew Herring, who's a driver, right? I don't know. How, I don't know Herring's uh, sponsor, uh, sponsor, spotter credentials, if you will. You know what I mean? So that that would be my only question as to why go to someone who may not be an experienced spotter. But that's not for me to decide, right? That's a Martin Truex Jr. question. Yeah, he might have unearthed next star spotter. I don't know. But I mean, if if they have that Toyota connection, there's probably a familiarity there. There's probably a trust there. Drew Herring spent a lot of time in the TRD simulator. Um, so it stands to reason that they're well aware of each other. And I I kind of like Herring having recent relevant experience under his belt. He kind of knows what it's like when Turek says that restarts are now more like restarts on super speedways, Drew Herring can probably understand what that means a little bit better than most up there right now. So I'd have to imagine that at the very least is an advantage. And in a fun coincidence, we actually had one of our listeners. We had a question about spotters. Caleb Goodman 91 on Twitter asked us, are there any advanced statistics for spotters, David, or, or are unmeasurables like trust, the spotter driver relationship, et cetera? Is that the most important part of the job? How would you answer that? There are not, and I have no plans for building any <laughs> advanced stats. Um, but it's a, it's a, it's a good question. I don't mean to poke fun. Uh, for me, yes, this is a, a subjective relationship and what one driver values isn't necessarily something another driver values. Some drivers absolutely hate getting inundated with information, hate it. Uh, for whatever the reason, it messes up their rhythm. I, I don't know, but other drivers beg for it or they desire coaching or require coaching. You mentioned TJ Majors. How he spots for Joey Logano is markedly different than how he spots for Haley Deegan in the truck series because those are two different drivers at different points in their careers. I view spotter choice the same way I view setup preference. For your race car, uh, a five loose isn't a universal five loose. It's not a five loose to every driver. Comfort is entirely subjective. And certainly if the car is relatively fast, it really doesn't matter. Same here, I think. If the driver spotter relationship is productive, then it really doesn't matter what's being conveyed on the radio. Good talk. We don't, we haven't covered spotter relationships uh, and, and drivers a lot on the podcast yet, but I'm glad uh, Martin Truex Jr. made a decision that prompted us to have something to talk about. Good stuff. All right, moving on. It is our Las Vegas preview. The series moves out west after three races in the state of Florida. And David, if we look back on recent history, Penske, they've dominated the wind column out in Vegas. Five of the last 10 Las Vegas races were won by a Penske driver. But then we saw last week at Homestead, another mile and a half track. And look, there was some spark at the beginning, but once the, the, the race switched into night, sort of, it was a dud for the Penske team. It just, they were off. What, what should we make of that as we're looking at a track they're, they're quite good at, but coming off a mile and a half track that they just didn't show up? What should we expect out of them this weekend? Oh, okay. Yeah. Let's unpack that. Yeah. Um, so their setup, 
I, I guess it was what it was. Uh, for some of the folks taking part in the chat that I hosted on the Motorsports Analytics Discord server, it looked as if Joey Logano and Matt Benedetto had short-run cars. And if that is true, it kind of makes sense given their strength is restarts and their weakness, if they have it, is long-run passing. So you play to your strengths. Nothing wrong with that. But bringing short-run cars versus long-run cars, we need to be careful here because sometimes you simply bring the cars you have right? Like there's not a short run fleet and a long run fleet in every race team's shop. And in that sense, you're just going to get stomped sometimes. There's 38 to 40 cars each weekend. Most times you are going to be defeated. And that is the very nature of the sport. And that's sort of what we saw from Penske relative to speed. But strategy, let's un let's unpack that for, for a second, shall we? That final stage, Alan, I can't justify what was being done with the knowledge that I have. They were seconds off the pace in the final stage. They brought Joey Logano and Brad Keselowski to pit road halfway through that run, which would place them on new tires with 30 laps to go. At this point, if a caution does not come out immediately, then this was a bet with rapidly diminishing returns because if there is a caution setting up an overtime restart, they'd still have 45 miles on a set of tires at home for track position <laughs> and everyone has to pit. And honestly, even if the caution falls, I don't know, you pick it two laps, three laps after their stop. They're at a disadvantage, and we saw this earlier in the race uh, when Martin Truex sliced through that field uh, at the beginning of the final stage on a set of tires that were maybe five or six laps fresher, but he went from 17th to 5th in like the blink of an eye. And uh, Larry McReynolds for Fox uh, talked about this on TV. Uh, he said that Penske was probably looking at analytics. I would love to see the analytics. <laughs> that suggested doing this because I see no upside and it made their race worse. Uh, Brad Keselowski was eighth before the stop. He finished 16th. Uh, Joey Logano was 20th and finished 25th. At this point, you're just giving away track position and points. And that might not matter in hindsight. I, I, I get that, but really you should aim for discipline in execution. And there wasn't any of that here. It was, sort of inexplicable. All right. Well, moving on to Vegas and you, you expect the strategy to look different for everyone this weekend, right? Uh, I mean, we might have some new listeners, David, so let's just explain, even though they're both mile and a half racetracks, right? Homestead, Las Vegas, quite different. I mean, so different on motorsportsanalytics.com. I mean, you would split them up into different categories, right? When looking at particular stats at different tracks. I mean, even though they're the same length, you would switch the, those two tracks would be in completely different categories when you would look at them. Why are they so different and how does that affect strategy? Yeah. So last weekend was really a rare treat just in terms of tire wear, whereas we saw lap time fall off nearing three seconds in some cases last week. That was cool. Uh, a look at last year's playoff race in Las Vegas, the only one we have uh, at Vegas on that specific tire combination, it suggests one and a half seconds worth of fall off. So long pitting is 
risky. Pitting towards the end of your fuel cycle, that is risky. However, it can work. The evidence we have of this is that we saw Kurt Busch with the 13th fastest car win this race last year as a result of a long pit strategy. That same strategy was influential in Chris Busher finishing ninth with a car ranked 23rd in speed. So whereas last week there was one clear functioning strategy, and that was short pit, we still saw teams like the five with Cliff Daniels and Kyle Larson. I don't know if you caught that. And the 99 with Travis Mack and Daniel Suarez, they went long to a negative effect. If they are willing to go long at Homestead, I would expect them uh, to do something similar this Sunday in Las Vegas, but it would have a much better chance at working to their advantage. We talk about handling at some of these tracks. Tires can play into that. They won't play as much this weekend at home at Las Vegas, as you just explained. But when a car is ill handling, maybe say like the Penske cars last week, or when something's just going wrong, how does that affect the strategy of a team? And if you do have bad handling, do you have an out via strategy? You know what I'm asking? If something's going wrong, can you, can you throw up a, an audible and kind of fix things? Is that possible at a track like Las Vegas? Yeah, I think you have to have a knack for diagnosing trouble with your car, uh, because if you, if you do, you can identify that trouble relatively early in the beginnings of the fuel window, or maybe you're opening the fuel window yourself. It stands to reason if a car is, uh, let's say extraordinarily loose, then short pit, correct the problem, get new tires, and you you remedy the problem somewhat. And, and yeah, you've relinquished track position, but you've also possibly placed yourself on a good strategy plan. All short pitters, when we're watching these races, not all of them are doing it because they're trying to pull a fast one. Uh, some of what we see manifesting in good strategy calls in hindsight are actually acts of necessity. Correcting issues is... Maybe not the top priority, but I would say a primary responsibility of a crew chief. And it just so happens that it can also offer a wonderful race-saving byproduct if you catch it early enough. Yeah, and it just goes to show when we, you know, we, we talk about crew chiefs and the decisions that they make and when they pit and the strategy you may have going in. But it's the decision makers, right? The ones who can call those audibles and call their driver in early to make that fix and maybe change the whole, you know, landscape of their race or plan for their race. It's the ones who make the, the changes in the audibles, I think, that are most successful. Yeah, and it's a lot of responsibility to have your, your being a mechanic, but also a race strategist. We've mentioned before, maybe the crew chief role is too big for just one person, but that's the kind of thing that's this being thought about in these decisions is you're having to do what is right for the car and hope that it fits neatly within maybe a, a pit plan that you have. Sometimes it can put you on a better pit plan than you, the one that you designed. And it's sort of a, you know, quote unquote blessing in disguise. We talked about the Penske cars to start because of their recent great history at Las Vegas. And even with the struggles last week, though, of the Penske affiliated cars, who is best positioned to win this weekend? I'm going with Joey Logano personally because he's won the last two spring races. Maybe this is a bit of a layup. I'm sorry, David. But uh, why, why would that continue, right? I mean, he's won the last two spring races in Las Vegas. Uh, I checked out Motorsports Analytics already this year. You've got the restart numbers up there. Joey Logano 
his restarting prowess still as good as ever. And so I think he has that going for him. So I just think he's good again. I mean, we've seen some speed out of him, not last week, but this is his kind of track. I I think of the Penske-affiliated cars, I think he's the one to beat this weekend. I will double down on that. Uh, Paul Wolf is the crew chief responsible for four of the five Penske wins across the last five years, uh, most of them with Brad Keselowski. But we saw Joey Logano uh, last year win this race, but also the last time we saw Joey Logano win a race, period, it was on a 1.5-mile track, kind of like this one at Kansas, with the same tire. And, uh, yeah, that's my answer to this question. I can see all of these guys having good days, really. And uh, if last weekend got you down, I'll say that comparing Homestead to Las Vegas is not apples to apples, even though they are both 1.5 milers, as you said. There's a lot of differentiation. They uh, do tend, the Penske crew chiefs, to get in their own way when it comes to some late race strategy. Todd Gordon last year giving up the lead in advance of a final restart because... I don't know. That's the way it's always been done. <laughs> ne- ne- never mind that it isn't actually a catch-22 and clean air can allow the leader to dictate quite a bit on these tracks on 550 horsepower. But seriously, fundamentally, the speed is there uh, at this track for Team Penske, as are the short runs, like you mentioned, the restarts. This is a team of restart specialists and a race breaking heavily with short runs suits everything that they do well. I don't want to ruin it if Matty D is your contrarian pick. We do that a little later. But uh Penske affiliated second place both races last year. What do you think for him? I mean, we this has been the year of sort of surprises, right? Why not Matty D? He is not my contrarian pick. And no, there's no reason that he should not do well other than his starting spot might be in the trenches. Again. But as we've seen, again, skew this race towards a lot of restarts and – We've seen a few wild Vegas races kind of pan out that way. That's going to be what's needed for him to knock one out of the park this Sunday. Yeah, let's talk about those restarts. They wild last week, and I remember going in trying to watch. Uh, if you remember last week's episode, the the, the advantage, if you will, uh, going into the race, the numbers told us that, it, that the row, the preferred row, it switched depending on what row you were on, what lane and all that. So I was watching those, and the restarts were wild. Do we expect that this week? Yes, I think we're actually going to see something really similar. The The restart dynamic itself is pretty even at Las Vegas relative to other tracks. In the playoff race in 2020, we saw the inside of row one register as the preferred groove. And from the second row on back, the preference changed to the outside. It appeared as... Uh, the leader could run the bottom in turns one and two, grab that clean air early, distance himself enough before shuffling over to the outside, which that line would pick up steam in turns three and four. And if you're not grabbing clean air out of the gate, then you're sort of just stuck on the bottom unless you can, you know, fling the car up to the top and just piss everybody off. But the the good news is that a good restarter can at least keep his spot because there is a high non-preferred groove retention rate here in Las Vegas. It's 45%. Longtime listeners will understand that's not on the doom and gloom end of the restart spectrum. Just wait until we get to some short tracks. You'll appreciate that. Um, but, but yeah, stands to reason. If you are a good restarter, you can probably make Las Vegas work for you. And 
we've talked about the Penske restarters. Uh, De Benedetto restarted fifth last year on lap 197 and gained three spots from the inside groove. Ryan Blaney gained three spots from seventh place, also inside groove on lap 256. So disadvantaged, yes, but not dead in the water, which is good because we like competition. And one caveat that we need to consider is clean air. Uh, the clean air bestowed to the leader. Kurt Busch was able to hold off any and all charges last year in the closing laps, and most of them were from faster cars. And sometimes folks take to Twitter and lose their minds when faster cars can't pass slow cars. But also, not every leader on a restart is as skilled at this particular talent as Kurt Busch. So I will say this. It will be difficult to go out and force a pass against a leader in perfectly clean air, but have some respect for the drivers out in front who are able to fend off a field because most mere mortals cannot do that. But if you can, the advantage is there. So Kurt Busch, Logano, any of the uh, the usual suspects, that is going to work in their favor. 100%. It is a skill to win with a lower car with a slower car people. It is a skill. That is a sign of a good driver, not not a flawed uh racing format. So, piss off. Um, but oh, so uh, I just no I, I want to give credit to the driver on those situations. So, wah, if you're if you can't make the pass, plenty of drivers can make the pass anyway. Um We've oh, talked man. about you took it so deep there. We took uh yeah, well deep into turn one. Uh we we've talked about the, the Penske cars and how good they are. We've talked about the restarts and who has prowess there. So David, who are we picking to win at Las Vegas and why? I will let you go first. Uh oh, I always go for okay, all right, that's fine. Um uh you know what? I'm gonna pick Kevin Harvick. Nice. Uh firstly, he was the most productive driver on five hundred and fifty horsepower tracks last year per motorsports analytics. Secondly, and most importantly, he and his team don't tend to make mistakes. And one of the differences I would note between Homestead, because it's so fresh in our mind, and Las Vegas is that you can make a mistake at Homestead. If there's enough time, you can right the ship. I don't think that's the case this weekend. I think you're one and done. I do. It's difficult to claw your way back at a track like this. And Kevin Harvick, I know he had led a lot of laps in the spring Vegas race last year. Uh, but his car at Kansas last fall, uh, again, it was the same tire compound. First class car did not win that race, but the speed was certainly there. A bad pit stop put him behind Joey Logano. And these late pit calls, which seem to stifle many crew chiefs, tend to work out fine for Rodney Childers. And they this four-team typically makes the pragmatic decision. So I'm bullish on the team, least likely to make a race-killing error. How is that? 
All right, that sounds fair. Um, betting on betting on uh, good decisions being made. I'm going to go with a layup too. I mean, not not that Kevin Harvick's a boring pick, David, but I'm going with one too. Martin Truex Jr. We've already talked about him in the podcast, but I think this is a, a feels like a Martin Truex Jr. type of race. Uh, he's been great there over the last six races. Uh, fast. He was fast last week. Maybe it's just a feel thing on my part, but um, you know, I, I worry he doesn't have Rodney Childers on the pick on the pit box, James Small, second year, full time there. Uh, they, they come around. This just feels like a Martin Truex Jr. race to me. And again, I keep checking your website for the restart statistics and his restarts are on point already. So you put him near the front of the field. If he's not already out in clean air, he can certainly get there. And I think this is the type of track he can do it. Yeah, and a good pick. And he had a great performance last weekend at Homestead. Again, a track that sort of suits what he does well. He's made a habit of performing well at Las Vegas. And I've just kind of had a hunch. I think there's more to see from Truex going forward. The restart last week was a fun reminder of that. Yes, he was on new tires at the beginning of that final stage. I will caution people, tires do not have eyes. He shot through the middle, he made that decision, and it was a nifty restart, and it netted poo, 12 positions in maybe two corners. It was impressive, and I'd like to see him have a chance to put a, uh, a full race together this year in year two with James Small. Yeah, I just got to shout out my friend Bob Pockers. So he tells some story of a drive. He asked a, que- a driver a question, and they retorted back, "Why are you asking me that?" And Bob said, "Well, we can't ask the tires questions, can we?" So <laughs> it just reminded me of that. That's why we ask you, the drivers, who make the decisions. All right, so we picked some winners. Uh, let's talk about our contrarian drivers to watch. David, well, I already mentioned Matt DiBenedetto. I mean, his numbers—they they just tell you what they were uh, last year: two uh, second-place finishes. Little caution there though. Uh, go back, you know, the last six races. I know it wasn't the same equipment, but his numbers aren't that great. So, but he did well last year. But for my contrarian pick, David, I'm going to go with Ryan Newman. Over the last six races there, he has the 10th best average finish at Las Vegas. He had a great run last week. It seems like there is a renewed vigor and speed over there at Roush Fenway Racing. So I'm going to pick Ryan Newman as my contrarian driver to watch at Las Vegas. What do you think? Uh, so, okay. So I was going to, cause I've just been bad in this segment. Uh, it's not fun. This segment's terrible to me. I was going to pick two and Ryan Newman was one of them. Nice. Oh, I feel so smart. Yes. So <laughs> you're right. So he, yeah, a top 15 guy in the playoff race, uh, at Vegas, seventh place last week at Homestead. And he should have some decent initial track position too. Uh, so he, he'll have a, you know, halfway decent starting spot. Plus he has Scott Graves on my Crucci fantasy team making calls and I trust in him for a race like this. And similarly, I'll pick Mike Shiplett and Cole Custer, who I said, uh, last week in my, uh, pre-race chat on the Motorsports Analytics Discord, I like Cole Custer as SHR's New number two on some of these bigger tracks. He did not disappoint. No. He was running seventh before cutting a tire in those final laps. He finished 16th at Las Vegas last year. Could stand to be a little bit better, but year two here of that number 41 team with Custer and Shiplett, both Cup Series sophomores. I think it could be really interesting, and I kind of want to jump on this bandwagon now just to see how it goes. Good stuff. Good picks. Ryan Newman and Cole Custer, we'll see how they do as our contrarian drivers to watch out in Las Vegas.
And finally, David, the moment I know at least some listeners have been waiting for, I got to say, I give a major shout out because last week at the very end of the episode, after all the credits roll, if you will, I mentioned, is anyone still listening? Because if you are, hit me up on Twitter because we have a cool announcement about Las Vegas. David, I got so many responses of people listening all the way to the end, and I just have to give so many kudos to our regular listeners because that's just so nice to hear. And it was fun to interact and 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 see your questions about what you know what we had planned and everything. So, David, if you don't mind, how about we do the big reveal? Uh, yeah, what are we doing? Uh, this, yeah. tease, this tease is amazing. I can't wait to hear what you have planned. Well, I don't want to over, over promise, but look, as promised, we do have a big announcement. We are trying to take every step possible with this podcast, right? And with that, we are partnering with the app Venue this weekend for a live post-race show. Now, some of you have tried the Venue app before. We did a little bit last year, um, but it's a revamped experience. It is now an audio discussion-based. If you know the app Clubhouse, it's sort of like that. So it'll be like listening to an episode of Positive Regression, only it is live. It is in real time after the race, and you can be a part of it and join in. All you have to do is go to your app store, download the Venue app, and then you'll join the Positive Regression community. Uh, do that before Sunday's race and, you know, keep updated on Twitter with us and we'll, we'll let you know exactly when we're going to go live. But basically we are doing a live post-race show after the Las Vegas race on the app venue and we would love to have you join us. Are those contracts that we signed ironclad? Because we, we, we've got nothing to talk about just yet. My goodness, this makes me nervous. No, it'll be good. I mean, it'll be analysis, right? And it'll be our instant reactions. Not so much hot takes, but I think hopefully we can apply the, the positive regression rub, if you will, to what we just saw. And it'll be a fun, good discussion, and we'll see what we can do with it. I think so, too. I say all of that in jest. Uh, I think that there is a way... To, to maybe not offer hot takes or those, those, those poor initial reactions. This is one of the reasons that I don't tweet during races. I'm very hesitant to offer a reactionary take, but we are going to take, uh, what I think a th- is a thorough measured look at the race that we just saw, break it down to the best of our ability. We might not have the full complement of stats yet, but we can work through that. We are going to have a good time, and uh, all of our listeners can be involved. So by all means, download Venue. Um, give it a try. We're going to plan for a few of these, but this the first big one is um, after this Sunday's race in Las Vegas. And Alan, I think we'll uh, we'll make it a thing. Can't wait. It'll be uh, it'll be fun. So yeah, download that app and, and join us. It'll be cool. Don't forget we are available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean, Luminary, and TuneIn. We are available no matter your device. Our entire back catalog of episodes is available for free at posregpod.com. If you like what you're hearing, and I know you do, please leave us a rating or a review. This stuff really does help in spreading the word. We, of course, notice it is so appreciated. If you have any questions, we'd love to hear them. You know this. We just answered one in the podcast today. I love interacting with you guys. Reach out on Twitter at posregpod, P-O-S-R-E-G-P-O-D. David, you are always working hard. What do you got this week? If you are not already a Motorsports Analytics patron, this week would be a good time to become one. The speed rankings have been aggregated for you. Average, median lap time, and average best lap time. These are new ways we will discuss speed. 
Those are available now on motorsportsanalytics.com as well as the restart stats that Alan alluded to and green flag pit cycle stats. Uh, in the coming weeks, we will also have peer and passing. It's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, also on the home site, motorsportsanalytics.com, a look at a few statistical doppelgangers for Chase Elliott. I used spider charts to discover drivers who impact their running whereabouts, much like the reigning Cup Series champion. And on NBCSports.com, the Big Thursday column is posted right now, and it's on... Kyle Busch and Ben Bishore and how this number 18 Joe Gibbs racing team can rise back to prominence. It's a lot of stuff. All good. I promise. Please check all of that out. Good stuff there. And uh, make sure you follow my new page over on YouTube, Alan Cavana Media. It's been fun learning that platform and making videos over there. Had some good stuff with uh, William Byron and Rudy Fugel this week after their win out in Homestead. Rudy Fugel, you just want to run through a wall after you know, hearing his motivation and how they're thinking championship. Go watch the video. It, it was just uh, the quote he had. I would be very happy if I was a William Byron fan. So make sure you go watch that. Make sure you set your lineup. I hope you are a fantasy live player over at nascar.com because uh do the fantasy live show for them over there and we try to preview and give you good advice you know start sits uh who, who maybe get some value i told you to start austin dillon last week it would have been a good value start so i hope you watch the show every week and just make sure you follow me on twitter you'll get, tweet out all those links to all the stuff we're doing uh at alan Cavana, of course thank you so much for listening this has been episode 92 of positive regression for david smith i'm alan Cavana. have a great one we'll see you next week Rose Davis, historian and co-host of the sports podcast, Burn It All Down. And now I'm hosting the new season of American Prodigy, all about black girls in gymnastics. For the last 40 years, black gymnasts have moved from the margins to the core of the sport and changed gymnastics along the way. Now they tell their stories. You'll meet trailblazers like Diane Durham, superstars like Jordan Childs, and everyone in between. Listen to American Prodigies on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.